0: It's 14 minutes and a half, so uh, almost 15 minutes past 9am, and once a month around this time, Bernard Callio comes in to enthuse about comic books and graphic novels and the magic that is created when you juxtapose image and text on a page across a series of panels in a little segment we
1: like to call Drawn Out. Good morning. Hello, Richard Watts. How are you? I'm very well. Excellent. Very well indeed. Excellent. Good news. Good news. Uh, yes, we are. We are considering some comics again. Much to the much much to my delight, which is. Uh, uh, and uh, as we keep talking about on this segment, uh, um, yes, I was just going to. What were you going to say? Oh, it just occurred to me to what? ask. Yes. What was. The moment
0: that you realised that comic books were wonderful, was there a, a particular comic, yes. a particular moment in your life yes. that lightning struck?
1: Yes, lightning struck. Yeah, there was a lightning strike on the top of uh, Rucker's Hill uh, in uh, in uh, Northcote, where I was a little boy, and uh, my wonderful mother, Marianne, um, uh, took me up the hill to introduce me to the delights of the local library. Uh, In those days, Northcote Library was a um, very beautiful uh, building. Oh, the the Victorian building next to the Town Hall. Indeed. Now, that's a Carnegie Library. That's an Andrew Carnegie Library. So, you know, the great American magnate who, who made gazillions, whatever he was doing, and then said all right i will spread i will spread libraries throughout the world and uh, that's a, so that's a Carnegie library these days it's a um these days it's a child care center but my my uh, my 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 um, excalibur my, my holy grail is to turn it back into a library but a comics library uh, uh-huh. That's that's what that's what will happen in the future. And was there a particular comic? There wasn't a particular comic. So mum turned me loose in the in, in the kids section. It was beautiful kids all wood lined, beautiful uh, um, shelves in there. And uh, okay. she went and found um, adult books. And I walked through books which with pictures in them, which was uh, I was used to, you know, and and where uh, words and pictures keep a keep a. Um, a safe distance from one another. There's the picture. There's the word. The words are at the bottom. The picture at the top. They just you know no nobody nobody you know. There's no mixed dancing basically. <laughs> <laughs> and then I opened. Then I found this thing, and I opened it. And there was just promiscuity reigned. You <laughs> know, the pictures dance with the words. The words curled around the pictures. And uh, you know, I suppose this is my narrative now, forty six years later. But I reckon that at that point there was some some. Fl- uh, Flick got switched. Some switch got flicked uh, in terms of the radical. Uh, uh, r- well, yeah, rubbing against each other. The, the friction, I suppose. That, that 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 what was being required of my mind and my body as well, I think, in terms of reading it, in terms of assembling it, in terms of putting it together, uh, I think I believe now that that was... A, and the, what the book was, it was a Tintin, tin, uh, and it was The Secret of the Unicorn. Okay. Um, yeah,
0: Tintin, so. tin, I'm fairly certain, was also my first exposure to comics. Somebody it, on Facebook recently was asking, I can't remember which Melbourne, I think it was a Melbourne comic book artist, I can't remember who it was, it was a couple of months ago now, I think, saying... Um, can you remember the some of the earliest comics you read no. and what influence have they had on your life as an adult? Yeah. And I said, well, the very first comics I remember reading were Tintin comics, and I have become a journalist. So <laughs> do make... You have a
1: little fluffy white dog? No, I don't, <laughs> nor do I have a quiff.
0: But, but interestingly, the oh. other very first comics I read were uh, Phantom comics at my nana's place up at New Merca. and And nights sadly, dress up. <laughs> sadly, I have not become a, a mysterious cri- masked crime fighter living in the deep woods surrounded by poison pigs. Indeed.
1: Neither have you become Billy Zane
0: No <laughs> oh,
1: Well, <Yeah. laughs>
0: There are some things that one can aspire to And perhaps being Billy Zane is not one of them Anyway to ask that, because yeah, I, look, you enthuse
1: a, about comics, and I wondered what that moment yeah, was, that, what
0: that comic was.
1: Yeah, but, yeah. It, it is. A, it, I think it's a great question to ask people because everybody, I reckon, has a comics origin story. Even if people say, "Oh, I never read comics," you go, "What was the?" You know, it was a Garfield. And They go, "Oh, yeah," or, or uh, Peanuts, or you know, some. Everybody has a, a moment where at least they, they crossed paths with comics and I, I think that that's always, you know, the, the origin story of comic book heroes are, are interesting but I think the, the origin of comic book reading is even more interesting. Excellent. Um, speaking of reading. Speaking of reading, we've got some here, uh, courtesy of uh, of Readings, the bookshop actually, so thank you to Readings for uh, loaning these to me. Uh, the first book I want to talk to you about this morning, Richard, is uh, a book by C- uh, Chris Gooch who we've talked about on the show before. Uh, Chris is a um, a com- Melbourne comic book maker and uh, very prolific ha- puts out many uh, minis uh, gets work into lots of anthologies uh, had last year a book published uh, by top shelf, which is an American comic book publisher uh, sort of not an indie comic book publisher exactly they 're sort of a uh, they're not marvel and dc or Fantagraphics, graphics but they you know they they, they have they, they put out a lot of work uh and uh pat grant who've also talked on this show is published by them in america uh last year last year last year they published his inaugural graphic novel bottled uh and in this in with deep breaths they have published a book of short stories so it's a collection uh by chris and it's very satisfying this collection we've got like 10 stories in it. They're all from very recent, for the last few years that he's either self-published or they've turned up in... um, Voiceworks Magazine, for example. Voiceworks Magazine, for example. Uh, And what this collection does is uh, uh, showcase... Chris's versatility in terms of uh, certainly in terms of line, uh, but also in terms of tone. I mean, tone in terms of the visual tone, but also the tone that 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 comes out of exactly what we we're speaking about um, a moment ago with with uh, you know how you how he assembles these pictures and words together, and thus how we as readers assemble them together. They are, they are almost classic short stories in the sense like they've got twists at the end. They are immediately Gooch has a great control. Over the form, and so you are very quickly put into a particular uh, uh, rhythm. Rhythm with each of these, each of these stories, and also the one of the lovely things about them uh, is that each one he uses just a single colour as 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 the colour throughout that particular story. So they've each got like a like a like a uh, you know well, here's, this is the orange story, and here's the purple story, and you know not not that it's overplayed, it just it just means that as you flick through it on that inaugural glance through, you get this sort of, oh, yeah, different feels of the stories just from the uh, spotting. I also like the fact, just as you were talking, I'm
0: flicking through the the comics. And so he's also uh, each uh, little comic short story has got a little introduction saying, originally published in VoiceWorks, issue 105 in 2016, digitally drawn, oh sorry, digitally coloured, drawn with a pencil. Yeah. And so the fact that he's telling us not only are we seeing his work on the page, he's just telling us a little bit about how it's been made, Yeah, uh, I,
1: drawn with a nibbed pen. Yeah, I really am glad you brought that up. I think that's a great uh angle on these stories is the technical like Chris is very interested in the technical uh, of course uh, um aspect of making, but we he uh, gently uh um inaugurates us into that conversation i think you know so this is the pencil story here 's the fine liner story here 's the nib pen and that 's and and of course one each one is accompanied with a beautiful, very simple drawing of the the implement in question you know it 's really nice,
0: and the stories he 's telling are uh Beautiful and simple as well uh, Flipping through, for example uh, The woman vacuuming her lounge room Who discovers a used condom <laughs> kind of Under the coffee table <laughs> And realises that somebody, a member of her family Is having sex in the lounge room yeah. Who could it be?
1: Well, it's either her daughter or her husband They're, yeah. they're the two options uh,
0: and, yeah. and then <laughs> Moreland Mates Which is set at a a meeting for, uh, to address the mental health of older men in the community. So these, On Sydney
1: Road, really. Yeah, yeah so yeah, these yeah.
0: simple little s- urban, domestic uh, snapshots. But even just looking at the first uh, panel or two, the first couple of pages, it makes me want to read more. Yes. It kind of, it's a, an incredibly inviting
1: world yes, that yeah. Chris Cooch is, is setting up in Deep Breaths. Yeah, yeah, in Deep Breaths. So I really recommend Deep Breaths, uh, published by Top Shelf. Uh, and Chris is... Current project is uh, Under Earth, which is a big uh, graphic novel that he's um, sort of two-thirds of the way through. So that's, that's well, we'll talk about that, I think, probably in next year. Um, but, yeah, Chris Gooch, always uh, a very interesting Australian comic book artist to look out for. Now, I'd like to also show you a, another book published by an American publisher, Australian cartoonist, uh, uh, um, and this is Bad Gateway... By Simon Hanselman. And this is just a very, very, uh, what would we call it, a handsome production. Uh, it's a big hardback book. Uh, and we have Meg, uh, the, uh, the witch character, on the front cover with a, a, a cigarette in her hand. And it begins with large paint. Uh, the, as you m- m- make your way into the book, into this big hardback book, you, get, you have these great double-page spreads, paintings, really, yeah of now megan Mogg... yes
0: yes have we, are we, have... we are we talking about the children's book characters given an adult life because in the first couple of panels they're smoking cigarettes they're <laughs> yep. kind of drinking beers yeah
1: sure sure and and things get well depending on your perspective worse or better from 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 there on in uh yes yes so he has um so Simon Hanselman is from uh, uh, Tasmania, now lives in America uh, and, and is a cartoonist whose main body of work is taken up with Megan Mogg who are indeed, well, who are. He, he has transformed them from the Jan Pierowski uh, children's book characters uh, into, and he's, he's added 20 years to their lives or 20 years to our lives, the readers' lives. And so they live in this terrible, terrible share house situation. They're in this very, very destructive relationship with each other, I guess in a a sexual relationship, Um, uh, this book – uh, this is, this is what, the fourth book, possibly, that the uh, Fantagraphics book, very famous independent comic book um, publisher in America, you know, sort of an art for art's sake uh, com- uh, comic book publisher, have released of Simon's work. They, um, they really venerate his work. And um, it's a very uh, dark and a disturbing vision of what uh, uh, Megan Mogg may have uh, may, may have got up to. The copyright issue yeah, sure, fascinates sure, me. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, presumably
0: yes. uh, Simon Hanselman has paid the rights Look, to use these established chari- children's book characters and or is he last is time I classed spoke as to, satire?
1: Last time I spoke to him, which was up in, uh, in Darwin, I don't know, four or five years ago, So this is a while ago, so I don't know whether you know there's been a lawsuit since. I'm sure there's not. He's just gone. "Ah, I'm just going to keep doing it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So far, I think I'm assuming legally it's in that zone of fair use. You yeah. Know, under under a satirical precisely
0: uh, uh, kind of remixing effectively. Yes. yes yeah. It,
1: yeah. 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 Um, so uh, so this I, I bring this book in sort of um, I proffer this book to you sort of strangely because it's certainly not to my taste. Uh, I, I find it kind of I, I sort of find it quite hard to read. That the, the lives of these uh, characters are so ugly. And, and so uh so desperate uh and and the it's so uh it's not effectless in terms of emotionalness it it's not that they they certainly there are you know highs and lows but really the, the i think it's the hopelessness uh in their lives which really uh disturbs me uh, very 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 deeply so um but I I did want to um come in and bring it in and talk about it because it's you know it's it is significant what he's doing and and it certainly has an enormous you know he's doing very well and I think I I think I I will always love Simon Hanselman because he did this thing at a comics convention last year where he married comics He, he he dressed up in a bridal gown um and he and Gary Groth, who's the publisher at uh, Fantagraphics, gave him away. Oh, and he married a pile of comics. Bless. <laughs> <laughs> Which you know, I love. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, Simon Hanselman's Bad Gateway, very beautifully named too. Like it's it it, it is like all the syllables of bad gate. It is a bad gateway. And it's book. a it's a big chunky hardcover yeah, as well. Yeah. So yeah. it's a very yeah. impressive looking book. And. Um, Finally, in terms of uh, we have been talking about Simon McCowan over the years as well. Uh, so he's published a series of um, mini-comics. Uh, I wouldn't call them zines because they're too substantial uh, uh, for that. This is the latest one in the series of a larger project called, I think, uh, The Bendigo Pub Project of Oscar Largo. So it, it, it's set in Bendigo. This latest book is called The Chant... Of the big black, uh, big blackbirds of Bendigo. Each title of this series, uh, of which there are four or five now, riff on an Australian, a class, an Australian classic. Obviously, this one, the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. Um, there is an elaborate, an elaborate world building going on here, which we talk about each time with Simon McCowan's books. It is Bendigo. There are big. Black humanoid birds flying over the rooftops of Bendigo. Uh, children are disappearing off the streets of Bendigo. There is a lot to do with beer and pubs. There is a lot to do with music. It is extremely... I, I absolutely love uh, this series and this is another great instalment.
0: And again, uh, his drawing style is not quite deliberately naive but there's a simplicity to very much. to the to the inking and the and the layout but interspersing the stories and the birds sitting on roofs talking to one another with their arms folded <laughs> leaning against chimneys uh, uh, there are ads for 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 beers and pubs
1: very nice like it's really drenched in pub life pub uh, pub it's culture. It's yeah.
0: really idiosyncratic
1: and very, really intriguing. Very, very. And so, yeah, there's this local uh, uh, landscape architecture stuff. There's an Australian literature stuff, uh, and there's things about music and a musical cult, the music culture. And that's both and, and then pub culture gets tied into that. In this, there's a massacre of the big blackbirds, which actually, you know, I, I really was very um, affected by. Um, uh, when we get to the that part of 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 the book so yeah so really warmly recommended so you can go to um dub 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 dot com dot a u and you can get um and uh, that's uh simon m c k e o w n simonmowwan dot com dot a u and uh it, they're also available from sticky institute the the great zine shop um underneath the uh de graves and the pass next to Flinders street station so there's there that's a very remarkable and uh, again you know, the comics that are being produced in Australia, really uh, all by Australian people, are very remarkable. Uh, and I just wanted to quickly spruik, uh, on Saturday morning at 11am, Gregory Mackay uh, is launching his Anders uh, collection, which is a collection of, co- of comics for kids. Um, great gift for Christmas. Uh, but really, really delightful um, comics by um, for kids. Uh, published by Alan and Unwin, but it's being launched uh, by me at uh, uh, with Gregory who'll be doing some live drawing at uh, Readings Bookshop, the kids' bookshop at eleven a.m. on on Saturday. So come along, bring your favourite kid, or just bring yourself there. Really delightful. Comic yeah, books. the Anders books are they're a joy. They are a joy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bernard
0: Callio, thank you for joining us. Richard Watts, absolute pleasure. Catch you uh, in early December, talking more comic books. Great. See you then. See you then. Triple R. My next guest for the morning has just joined us on the line. Annie Davey is the Artistic Director of the Flying Fruit Fly Circus, who are celebrating their 40th anniversary with a festival, the Borderville Circus Festival, up in Albury, Wodonga. Annie, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Richard. Why... Have the 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 Fruities, as they're affectionately known, endured for forty years? Because that's in that time, plenty of other arts organisations and companies have come and gone. Why have the the Fruities endured?
2: Uh, well. I think it's got a, uh, to do with a number of things. It's got to do with the um, elevation of circus, contem- particularly contemporary circus as an art form in Australia and the rest of the world. Um, the rise of Cirque du Soleil internationally and the um, embedding of circus as an art form in France, for example, has been really... has um, meant that it's a, it becomes a career choice... Uh, well, a credible career choice for kids. It's also got to do with our isolation... We just, you know, we're in the middle of the country and we truck along doing what we do and and sometimes things that, you know, huge upheavals in fundi- the funding landscape and stuff like that or more particularly huge upheavals in the sort of artistic landscape pass us by. Look, Fruities has been up and down, of course, but... What we have is a really strong partnership with the schools. We have secondary students coming through all the time, so we are always regenerating our pool of talent um, as a sort of part of our, you know, what we do. And and circus is so um, a part of a... Well, it's become a part of this community, so to, to, for Aubrey Rodonga to lose... The flying fruit fly circus is sort of inconceivable at this at this
0: stage, and inconceivable for Australia as well, because it strikes me that the the flying fruit fly circus have become perhaps the most influential circus organisation in Australia, based on the sheer number of graduates who pass through the the Fruity's doors uh, and end up working with companies all over Australia and uh, indeed internationally as well.
2: Well, that's right. That's right. And. Also because we employ a lot lot of graduates, but we also employ a lot of international trainers and a lot of people who have come through different, other than Fruit Fly, um, uh, training institutions to become um, professional circus artists. So we're like magpies. We have an enormous range of influences coming into our troupe. We don't... um, While we are isolated, we're not isolated in the um, richness of the influences that the kids... Um, receive. Also we're, I suppose we're, we're not trying to produce the art, I suppose we're producing the artist. Yes, we do shows. But um, we, do, we do and we tour and all of that, but that's a small part of our business because we really can only tour for about five weeks a year. So we're always recreating and renewing and revitalizing the kids and their, their sense of what the art form is and also their skill, I suppose, just their basic skill level is after 10 years from a very young age is really superlative.
0: Now, we're talking about kids aged from 8 to 19, so that's a really broad range of young people to work with, each presumably with their own specific needs. Yeah. How do do you kind of create (laughs) a program that uh, kind of works for an 8-year-old and a 19-year-old? Are the classes very much separated or do the kids come together to train at at, at certain times?
2: They do come together and train at certain times. Yes, we do have... We've got three separate sort of training levels. Um, As the kids get older, they start to stream into their sort of specialty areas, I suppose. But, you know, if you've got... uh, If you're doing a group balance act, for example, you need little kids and you need big kids. And, And so often the very little kids will be in with the very big kids you know, performing and training and, you know, a three high. You need a, a little kid on the top, a middle-sized kid in the middle and a big kid on the bottom. So you're not going to get them all from year 10. You're going to get them from year 3, year 9 and year 12. So, yes, they do train together and we try and make that happen a lot. So we'll have them training alongside each other and then we'll have them training with each other in the same group, but also we separate them out as well to attend to their specific needs. Now... It, you know, circus circus is very communal. We, you know, that's sort of what we do.
0: And I wanted to acknowledge that kind of communal and community element of circus because one of the things that is happening at the Borderville Circus Festival, running from the, the 4th yeah. to the 7th of December, is that opportunity for so many not just the current crop of fruities to come together but former fruit fly members as well there's a a real sense that it's not just a celebration of the company and of 40 years of training and making circus work but it's a celebration of the greater circus community
2: absolutely because fruit fly has turned our fruit fly community particularly our, our alumni community is the greater circus community um So we really want to celebrate, we really wanted to honour a whole lot of conflicting um, um, desires from our community. One of them was to mark the beginning and to celebrate the founding members and that sort of nostalgic moment of beginning. One of them, and we're doing that by recreating the sort of first moments of of the, um, of, of the organisation by putting a tent across the road and putting a show in the tent with all of the f- current crop of fruities in it. Um, but we also want to honour all of the kids who have been through, and not just the kids but the parents and the people who have worked here for all that time and the people who... And the, and the, the, the community members who who helped put up the tent for the first couple of years you know we want to we want to give, give, a, give a, a, a have a sort of a celebration for all of those people in different ways so, We're asking community volunteers to come in and help us put up the tent. We're asking them to help us pull down the tent. um, We've got the the over-the-road, which is the sort of nostalgic moment, like, yes, we put it up, and yes, we did it, and yes, it's still here, where we're all, um, you know, have a beer and look at some old photos and and laugh. Hopefully a lot of people will be there. We've also got the Fruities at 40, so we're inviting a whole lot of our, um, I suppose, more recent graduates, people who are still performing, to come here, and to perform their their, um, their skills here in a big show at the, at the end of the night on Saturday. We've also got a couple of documentaries. So there was a documentary made in, um, at, in the 30th anniversary, I think, and we're making a documentary this year, um, which we'll show at the Regent Cinema up the road in Central Albury, um, uh yeah so it's it's going to be great we're also yarn bombing the trees around the tent pink pink and white in a a sort of a nod to the first tent which was what we called the big pavlova a big pink and white striped tent (laughs) so that's fun it's going to be great fun
0: One of the things I'm actually coming up for it. I'm genuinely excited to get back. I was. Uh, we're
2: the... really excited to have you, Richard. I uh, thank you.
0: Uh, so I was at the first Borderville Festival. Uh, what was that? Four years ago? Now? Five years ago? I can't. Five remember.
2: years ago, I think. Yeah. I think this one's the fifth Yeah. yeah.
0: So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how it's evolved because uh, even at that first Borderville Festival, I was really struck by the sense of community that was being embodied, not just in the performers but in, uh, in the audiences as well. I got. To, as you do, you talk to a complete stranger sitting next to you while you're waiting for a show to start sometimes. And it was somebody's uh, grandmother or some so who was had, so had seen a couple of yeah. generations of kids go through the flying fruit fly circus. And it strikes me that the fruities do something remarkable for for Albury Wood uh, and well I guess greater Albury Wadonga. It's not just um a national training centre, but there's so many of the local kids who might just go along for I know that they don't necessarily want to become professional circus artists, but for the local kids who don't want to play footy or netball, for example, it's an opportunity for the local kids to do something, as well as kids from all over the country to study and train there professionally. So, working on a few different levels, a few different streams simultaneously.
2: You're absolutely right, Richard. So our our main program um, caters to about 75 kids, and as you say, a lot of them are from interstate. I don't think there's any from overseas at the moment. Um, But we also... uh, you know, living in Albury just gives you a, a, a leg up in terms of that aspiration because you don't have to move. You don't. Have, your parents don't have to go to a lot of effort to help you into the program. So, you know, th- our, our kids living in Albury and Wodonga already have an advantage in terms of aspiring to a circus career. So that's really a particular thing for a, for a regional place in Australia, in the centre of Australia. You know, it's, it's unlikely but it's very true that for the last 40 years, a kid from Albury Wodonga is more likely to become a professional circus artist and a very good one than a kid, say, from um, Armadale or... or, or, Yes.
0: Now, we mentioned uh, that the Borderville Circus Festival is the, the celebration not only of what the fruit flies do all year round, but of 40 years of the Flying Fruit Fly Circus as well. So those dates again, it's the 4th to the 7th of December, and you can find out more details about the program at borderville.com.au. But Annie, while I've got you on the line, I just thought it would be great for anyone listening who who has a kid who loves circus. How do, they, how do kids go about entering and training uh, at the Flying Fruit Fly Circus School?
2: Well, we have uh, we've got a recreational program, obviously. So, if you live in the area, you can come in and and try it out you know, do Saturday mornings for a, a year, a term, whatever. Uh, we also have a national training project every year in the middle school holidays. We're on Victorian time in terms of our school calendar year. And that's two weeks of high-level training with um, our high-level coaches for anybody who wants to come. And then we audition every third school holiday. So this is September school holidays. We run a three-day sort of intensive training audition um, where we invite people. You can also um, audition by video if you want to, but it's around that September time that we're really um, starting to cast our next next year's intake. Um, But if you're interested, get in touch. We are always interested in, um, you know, looking at kids who are interested in circus. We're always interested in finding out who they are, where they're from, encouraging more kids to come, and from further afield as well. (laughs)
0: Thank <laughs> you. So, if, for example, someone listening uh, has got a, uh, is themselves uh, a young person who maybe I don't know they're involved with West Side Circus, for example, exactly. or if you 've got a family member who is really passionate about circus, and you want to want them to have an opportunity to train and skill up and then I love the fact that kids go from the fruities and then they might train at uh, Nika uh, and then they go on after they 've graduated, they go on to work with uh, whether it 's Circus Oz or whether uh, it's the uh, the The Canadian company, the Seven Fingers, whatever it might be, Fruity's graduates are out there in the world doing great work. So, flying uh, to learn more about the school, FruitflyCircus.com.au will talk to you, give you the details about the school and the training program, and the Borderville Circus Festival, uh, which, as we said, is running from the fourth to the seventh of December. Mm. Borderville.com.au for more details. It's going to be, I think, a really fun weekend, Annie.
2: It's going to be fantastic. We're working on the big show now, 75 kids in one show called Back in the Big Top. It's really exciting.
0: I've been talking with Annie Davey, the Artistic Director of the Flying Fruit Fly Circus. Annie, I'll see you in a couple of weeks, and thanks for joining us.
2: Look forward to it, Richard.
3: See ya. Triple R on FM Digital, online and via the app.
0: Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. My next guest has joined us in the studio to talk about the exhibition Velvet Iron Ashes at State Library Victoria. Lead curator Carolyn Fraser, welcome to Triple R. Thanks, Richard. So this is not only uh, a new exhibition, which uh, amongst other things is kind of playing with and exploring the the kind of synchronicity that you can have walking through any exhibition space and creating your own journey and framing your own adventure. Uh, But it's also an opportunity for the library to present a space that hasn't really been seen for quite a few years as well.
3: That's true and uh, the gallery is part of our bigger redevelopment project um, which uh, we're very excited because the final part of that redevelopment will open on the 5th of December and that's the culmination of a project that uh, we've called Vision 2020 and a big part of that has been to open up spaces in the library that have previously been inaccessible to the public including some really stunning, stunning rooms and the gallery is in one of those rooms. It was a building that was constructed in 1892 as part of the original um, building that housed the Natural History Museum. And so it did begin its life as a gallery, um, but for a very long period, up until about two years ago, it was the manuscripts department. And in the time since, it's been um, uh, a great deal of work has gone into making it a space that can house Internationally, um, internationally, um, uh, I guess the standards of a space to hold those kinds of exhibitions.
0: Now, so the inaugural exhibition, then, that's being presented uh, in the space, "Velvet Iron Ashes." Uh, I get the feeling that for you, this is there's a, a, a sense, a real sense of something quite personal with this exhibition. There's a, a an in every exhibition is a reflection of its curator in a way. But talk to us about kind of your approach to this particular exhibition. Because I, as I mentioned, that kind of serendipitous accidental discovery you can have walking through a gallery or, or exploring a library, it's like, I don't know, clicking on uh, uh, Wikipedia links and going down into a rabbit hole of discoveries. How did you just want to present the exhibition and what are some of the highlights for you personally?
3: Mm. Well, that's... I mean, your description is really very accurate of what the exhibition is, but that wasn't always self-evident. You know, when we began the process, um, it was really... uh, You know, um, a blank page for us in terms of what to do in the space. We have a number of other exhibition spaces at the library including two permanent exhibitions, World of the Book and Changing Face of Victoria so it was really important that the new exhibition didn't replicate those exhibitions or the kind of curatorial concepts behind them and so for a long time for me it was a really interesting kind of conundrum of how to make something that is new um, Um, that really um, highlights our collection but doesn't sort of step on the toes of those other exhibitions. And so for me it was really in looking about what the library is and its history and its future, what we're going to be developing in the new parts of the library, um, that really gave me the idea of having an exhibition that is reflective of libraries and our library specifically.
0: Now if we talk about some of the works that are in it let's start with the the fact that the title Velvet Iron Ashes the ashes you've got the ashes urn uh, that cricket tragics i'm sure will be queuing up to see the iron you've got ned kelly's armor what's the velvet
3: well there's two there's two objects that are velvet um, but the the one that is on display currently is really the starting point for me in developing this exhibition and it's a costume that was worn by uh, jesse clark then jesse brooks in 1934 at a pageant of nations that was held at the melbourne town hall and it was held um this pageant was held as part of the celebrations for the centenary of european settlement of victoria and the costume um was uh, uh, a personification um of Victoria itself. And so uh, the skirt that Jessie wore is painted with three major iconic Melbourne buildings Government House, the Town Hall, and uh, Flinders Street Station. Um, There's a very uh, beautiful velvet cloak, uh, which is painted and encrusted with lead glass glitter. And that is a symbol of the Murray Darling uh, River system and the then brand new irrigation system and then the headpiece is a really dramatic, um, uh, dramatic one and it is um, modelled after a transmission tower at your lawn, which was then a brand new electrification project
0: now there's a, a whole section of the exhibition that then is kind of documenting and exploring yarlorn the the township that was built almost as a model town for the workers at the yarlorn power station uh sadly the yarlorn the town no longer exists i i, I used to uh, i grew up in that area so I, that's where i remember seeing some of my first movies at the yarlorn cinema the town has since been torn down to expand the uh the open coal mine there but being able to present uh, artefacts of a lost Victorian town strikes me as, again, just a little fascinating kind of way to not just explore the past but to personalise the past as well.
3: Well, the Yalorn story I didn't know much about um, and so... uh, the Jesse Clark's headpiece was really what inspired me to look into that history. And it is a fascinating one. And you mentioned that it was a model town. And it was one of only Australia's um, two model towns, and the other is Canberra. Um, people in Yulon, however, think of Yulon as being the, the superior model town <laughs> because it was the architect was an Australian architect as opposed to um, an American architect who developed Canberra. And the idea behind the model town was. Um, uh, one that grew out of a philosophy that developed um, in response to industrialization in Britain where you know the workers' conditions um, were extremely poor and it was seen as being a way in which by providing uh, a more healthful work environment uh, or living environment that you could create better conditions for workers, which is not entirely altruistic. I mean, the idea was that you would get more work out of those people.
0: A happy worker is <laughs> a Productive, worker, of course, of
3: course, and yet at the same time, um, uh, the the social contract that was at play, which was really one that was you know written up directly by John Monash, was one in which uh, the people uh, of Yulon were really encouraged to make it a beautiful place and to actually really love the town, and people did, and so the destruction of that town really has had long term reverberations in the Latrobe Valley.
0: Elsewhere in the exhibition that we're discussing, Velvet Iron Ashes, there's... uh, images uh, of the famous uh, McRobertson's Chocolate Factory, the white city of Fitzroy uh, some of the buildings of which are still standing and are still painted white, others I think that some were recently demolished sadly, but what's the connection between your lawn power station and McRobertson's Chocolate Factory?
3: Well some of the connections in this exhibition are rather loose and and I do say that some of them wouldn't stand up in court, (laughs) but there are a number of connections Um, One of them is really um, a connection that has to do a chronological connection to the centenary year and that's really a story that's about McRobertson's gift to the city of Melbourne which was an enormous gift of a hundred thousand pounds which in today's money would be roughly 10 million dollars and that story is quite an incredible one. Um, the other story about you know the confectionery company and just his kind of um, uh, I guess um, uh, image and and just the impact that that company had on Fitzroy itself is has some connections to Yulon through the electrification of those factories and his interest in brand new technologies, one of which was Fairy floss machines. And the first... Electrified. Uh, well, the first Ferrifloss machines were powered by electricity, and and imported those to Australia, and the advertising for that is really terrific, where it talks about that this would be candy free from the um, I, uh, the sort of um, uh, I guess um, contaminating fingers of human hands, and so and and that they and that this was all possible because of electricity.
0: If you've just tuned in, my guest is Carolyn Fraser, who's the lead curator at the State Library Victoria exhibition Velvet, Iron, Ashes. Uh, and there's uh, a beautiful range of works on display there. As we've heard, there's uh, there's dresses, there's photographs, uh, there's posters uh, such as the the lithograph of uh, the Melbourne Centenary celebrations from 1934. Uh, but and I imagine and we, I've mentioned the Ashes urn, which. I'm sure plenty of people will want to go and see for themselves, but also the fact that the exhibition includes Ned Kelly's armour, and it's an opportunity not just to look at the armour presented against a wall. You can walk right around its display case, see it from every side, see the bullet holes that have penetrated it as well. It's a pretty remarkable cultural artefact for the library to have in its holdings.
3: It really is and the story of why the library has the armour is a really interesting one and uh, one of the things that I was really um, uh, interested in doing in this exhibition was telling an aspect of the Kelly story that we hadn't ever told before. Um, The armour has been on display at the library in Changing Face of Victoria for the last 13 years and so we've told a great number of stories around uh, uh, the broader Kelly story Um, but I was really interested in looking at the history of the armour itself and its role as an object in the sort of development of that broader myth around the Kellys and so I was really really keen to find a connection between stories that would include the armour and and tell a story from another perspective and the really um, uh, for me like exciting thing was to make a connection between the story of the of the armour itself and the story of the ashes urn and the connection between them is actually a, a person and that person is Janet Lady Clarke who was an amazing figure of the late nineteenth century.
0: The exhibition Velvet Iron Ashes at State Library Victoria is on now until the 12th of July. You can find out more information at www.slv.vic.gov.au It's an opportunity to see one of the recently renovated spaces at the library as well as the exhibition itself. Carolyn, just as a final question, obviously anybody can wander into the exhibition and and navigate for themselves, follow uh, cabinets around the wall in what looks like a straightforward fashion, roam from uh, cabinet to cabinet randomly, but I understand there's some kind of map matic machine that creates a path through the exhibition for you, should you need one.
3: Yes, and this is something that we're incredibly excited about. This is a digital interactive that we've worked with a local company, Sandpit, to develop. And the idea is that because the exhibition isn't actually it isn't actually quite as clear as you have presented in that there's two entrances to it the stories are not chronological they rely on links that have very different kind of valences and so what we wanted to do was offer a way that people could choose two objects in the exhibition any two objects and the machine will take those two objects think about it and then generate a personalized tour that links those two connections so it shows what the other objects in the exhibition are and a little bit about their stories so you can see how those connections are made. So it's really actually something that provides an opportunity of the way I was thinking about how these stories would connect and that people can kind of make their own connections between them.
0: Velvet Iron Ashes, as we said, is the new exhibition at the State Library of Victoria. It's a free exhibition. Uh, It's on until the 12th of July. More info at the State Library Victoria website, www.slv.vic.gov.au. I've been chatting with the exhibition's lead curator, Carolyn Fraser. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Richard.